What's going on? This is King Cam's and Jumbe's podcast. Jumbe means message, and the message is the Black Church and our historically Black colleges or universities. Um, somebody on TikTok uh, one time mentioned that uh, the Black Church and HBCUs did not do anything for the Black community. Uh, I understand that for that individual was totally misguided and misinformed, but uh, nonetheless, I figured that we should tell our story. Um, as a HBCU grad and a member of uh, the Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, uh, I know that the majority of teachers, black teachers, uh, came from HBCUs, and some of them did pledge Greek letter fraternities. But um, let's get to it. See, at the dawn of the Black Reconstruction, newly emancipated Africans in America began to realize a new freedom. They were free to renew and rebuild their lives. They also realized that freedom will only be temporary if it remains at the level of capital and labor. Now, with the clarion call and theme that education is liberation, the African-American churches in the South and in the North stepped in to educate the people, their children, and hopefully their children's children. Thus, the Reconstruction not only become a physical one, but a mental reconstruction. Redeveloping the minds of the people, established communities of their own. Individuals were using things like land grants by building and developing towns such as Freemantown in Dallas, uh, areas of Houston and Black Raw Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, just to name a few. The edu educational impact of the African-American church during the Reconstruction and their use of the Moral Land Act of 1862, the Freedmen Bureau of 1866 will be focal point of this discussion. Now, although land grants were given in African-American churches uh, was supposed to establish their own colleges, the intention and contention of these institutions was to further labor and skill. Labor and skill. Not the mind, but the hands, right? So instead of obtaining a classical liberal education similar to the white counterparts, there, there are clauses in, in these land grant acts telling conditions, uh, telling people as to how these institutions of higher learning can maintain their status. Therefore, the primary sources, uh, as well as the writers of Booker T, will be discussed. Now, we be in this book, Search for Order in 1877 and 1920, describe the fundamental shift in American values. The primary focus of America at this time after the Civil War was to rebuild the Union. Okay? This focus was magnified by attempting to make the Black community as a viable asset to society, as they would think it should be. This shift in value stemmed from the separation of the Protestant worldview to an industrial economic one. Conversely now, the African-American community held true to Protestant values in developing their neighborhoods and schools. Now, in July of 1862, the Congress passed the Moral Land Grant Act providing acres of land for refu refugees and African-Americans. According to Section 4, 
for this legislation, the land would be for the use of, get this, agriculture and mechanic arts or for industry. A and M. Yeah. This was designed to encourage everyone in the United States to participate in rebuilding the nation after the Civil War. Keep in mind that the Civil War was designed, was uh, fought to free, was originally fought to maintain the Union, but later on, um, the, the idea was to, this war was fought to free the African Americans. So after the dust settled and all the rubble, they said, hey, African Americans, you need to help uh, rebuild this too. So, moreover, a similar law, the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1865 provided 40 acres of land for newly emancipated African-American families. That only lasted so long as well. But it was provided that they proved themselves to be loyal citizens of the United States through community uplift or military service. Later, in the 1890s, the 2nd Moore Act was passed in order to provide further funding for colleges and universities. The major clause of these land uh, grants is that the land is to be utilized for arming and vocational training. The reason why such laws were essential to the mental reconstruction of African Americans was the rise of racism and Jim Crow in the postbellum America. David Potter in his book, Impending Crisis, stated that the institution of slavery was morally wrong. Yeah, we know. And the term slave was exchanged for apprentice in order to satisfy the new task and to continue servitude. Further, uh, eight years before emancipation, the idea of reopening the African slave trade became prevalent and probable in order to boost the economy and fund the Western expansion. Now, for the Civil War, basically, they was re- the idea of bringing back, pumping in some more Africa into America. But in the book, The Search for Order, Robert Weeb, he uh, observed the new form of oppression was rising, Jim Crow. And we, as African-American people, know this all too well. and see it played out even now. White people in America during the 1870s and 80s were preoccupied with classism and the maintaining of the Negroes in their proper place in society. Due to the to the emancipation, this could be this could upset the order of things. Hmm. This is when political barriers such as poll taxes were established to hinder the upward climb of African Americans. Hence, violating their 15th Amendment rights, resulting in turning the tide back to the quote-unquote days of the antebellum South. In the book, The New Jim Crow, uh, mass incarceration of any age of uh, colorblindness, post-Civil War era was full of corruption, abusing the 13th Amendment clause in order to make them slaves of the state once again. So the idea of accepting the children of newly emancipated African-Americans were unimaginable to some, and basically just flat out impossible for others. Now, the denomination of Methodism appealed to African-Americans because of its outright opposition to slavery, as well as the belief in equality education. There is an innate desire for Africans uh, to read and understand biblical texts. William Montgomery goes on to say, in the early 19th century, the AME Church of African 
African Methodist Episcopal Church penetrated the South, bringing its Orthodox theology and ordained ministry to Southern Blacks. The approach would be different because Methodist preaching seemed to be more uh, structured in contrast to Pentecost and Baptist style sermons. This would be a new experience because the AME Church membership demographics were primarily freedmen. Now, although there were white ministers serving in the church who were racist, Methodist Church employed black ministers to preach to their people with freedom and zeal. This proved to work to the advantage of the local as well as national levels. According to Dr. James H. Cohn in his book, Black Theology and Black Power, the term black theology was coined during the civil rights movement. However, the use of the term originated from the ancestors in the South. Black theology purpose is to apply the freeing power of the gospel to black people under white oppression. So Cone state, he says black theology is to analyze the black man's condition in the light of God's revelation in Jesus Christ with the purpose of creating a new understanding of black dignity, black dignity among black people and providing the necessary soul in that people to destroy white racism. Home goes on to say that Jesus' work is essentially one of liberation. Dr. Lawrence N. Jones, the Dean of Howard University of Religion, in his 1979 article, Black Churches in New Agenda, most of the early black churches began as an educational benevolent society, and most of them were concerned about the sick and shut-in widows and orphans of the community. Hmm. In this article, the first agenda of the early black American congregation included the proclamation of the gospel, of course, benevolence's education, education, and by the mid-19th-century uh, foreign missions. Now, essentially, the AME church desired to do more because for the cause of Christ. So in 1820, Reverend Daniel Cooker was the first African-American Methodist missionary to go to Africa. Cooker formed a church on a ship which would operate in Sierra Leone. Therefore, they would be aggressive in the development of their institutions. In 1844, the Amy Church formed the Home A Foreign Mission Society, Missionary Society. In 1847, uh, Bishop Daniel Payne served as pastor and spearheaded the early educational efforts of African Americans during the 19th century. Black church served as an oasis in a weary land. Like Baptist, the idea that emerged was due to the creativeness of the African slaves within the denomination. There was an institution inside the institution. And the people made the word of God their own and created their faith based on their needs. Yes, the religion was received uh, from white people and slave masters. However, our answers just flipped it and made it something, made it just something special, something new, something liberating. At the end of the Civil War, the Black Church spearheaded the efforts to educate the people. One of the primary reasons for obtaining an education was to uh, obtain full rights as citizens. Another objective for the Black Church was for the future developments to lay the education and character of their menstrual ranks. Another goal 
or to William Montgomery in his book, Under Their Own Vine and Fig Tree, is to unify the community through publications developed by the people. Thus, the, some use the Moral Land Grant Act and Freedmen's Bureau legislation uh, to push their efforts. On the other hand, in order to prove to the majority that the newly emancipated blacks were not a threat to society, others decided to forego the land grant concerns in order to ensure they have their basic civil rights as U.S. citizens. Now, according to Reverend Horace uh, Tolbert in his book, The Sons of Allen, most schools during this time were focused on religious and classical theological studies. However, in order to receive land from the federal government at that time, these newly established institutions had to uh, to be agriculture and mechanical schools and not liberal arts. They had to be A and M schools, not uh, schools of liberal arts and sciences. So to become marketable at the dawn of the American Industrial Revolution, Jay Stowell observed black schools added industrial courses to their curriculum. Courses such as printing, blacksmithing, plumbing, and carpentry were essential for the uh, furtherance of the school as well as uh, the people they served. Hence, industrial and training schools were a vital part of church education. Not only, only a, with a higher grade of practical education would bring out the potential of African-Americans during the Reconstruction era. Thus, over the next 50 years, at the turn of the 19th century, land-grant acts allowed for 16 colleges to be established by both Baptist and Methodist churches. Now, we have to understand, this is during the Reconstruction period, and everybody has to start over. Everybody has to adjust. And remember, one of the goals of education is to make life better. Not just knowing, you know, uh, Greek and Latin and hieroglyphics and so on, but to make life as we know it better. Keep that in mind. Now, there are key individuals during the reconstruction period that advocated the use of land grants with the focus of vocational education as a means to develop the minds and communities of black people. In the Methodist tradition, Bishop Daniel Payne of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, according to C. Eric Lincoln, set the educational goals focusing on developing and educating the clergy and organized schools such as Wilberforce University. Other people, such as Frederick Douglass, found the value in education while in, get this, bondage. As a former slave, because of self-education and determination, his views concerning slavery and freedom in America was a vital part of the overall development of America. In the book, Impending Crisis, John Brown was trying to craft a rebellion using African-Americans in general, uh, with the blessing of Frederick Douglass in particular. However, Douglas was not in agreement with this plan and believed that direct assertive dialogue was the way. Rather than violence and the use of force, Douglas, in his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, described as one who studied and read the Liberator publication after obtaining his freedom. Now, in doing so, in doing so, through educating himself, he developed his own views concerning freedom and anti-slavery. See, education has to be uh, to the point to where 
our youth as well as adults can think for themselves and make well-informed and adjusted decisions. That's what Frederick Douglass did. And starting in the mid-1840s, he would begin his, he would begin to voice them. Even in a time when other abolitionists asserted that land and gaining property was more important uh, than the freedom of human beings, they did not mention the fact that education is part of the liberation process. So they were saying, okay, you can get land, you can get whatever you want, but without it, education was not a priority, you know? So in the book, Anti-Slavery Debate, David uh, Davis states that Frederick Douglass was outraged in 1843 when his white abolitionist colleague, John Collins, asserted that anti-slavery was a mere dabbling with effects and tolerating private ownership of land is was worse than enslaving human beings. So property, land, owning land for yourself was worse than owning people? Uh, ridiculous. Now Douglass, along with other abolitionists, made strides to ultimately bring the conversation of slavery and freedom into the halls of Congress. In the midst of the Second Great Awakening in the United States, Douglass was the uh, antithesis of, of the prevailing thought of perpetual servitude of one and lordship of another. Hence, the views of Frederick Douglass were focused on life after slavery through education. They were, uh, they were to rebuild themselves economically, socially, and politically. This was applied through the Moral Land Grant Acts and Freeman Bureau Acts. Another figure. During the Reconstruction period was Booker T. Washington. Like Douglas, Washington was a former slave and he was an educational leader, born a slave. In Franklin County, Virginia, neglected by his father, who was white, Washington had to learn about life and freedom with meager things he attained. Once attaining his freedom after the Civil War, he acquired a job as a coal miner. The wages were low, but his desire to learn was high. He received tutoring at a local night school, and once the session was over, he returned to the coal mines in his shift. One day, he found out about Hampton Institute, and he was determined to go. As a Hampton student, Samuel C. Armstrong, a former Union soldier turned educated, became one of Washington's influences in academics. Armstrong influenced Washington as a mentor, showing him African-Americans can adjust to society by learning trades, and acquire industrial training. Hear, hear that term again, agriculture and mechanics, and not just classical. <laughs> Washington was a great speaker and was in demand while he was yet the president of Tuskegee. One of, the, one of his most noted speeches was the Atlanta Compromise of 1895, gave him national notoriety because his beliefs and stance, uh, because of that, influential white people were drawn to his cause because he was, should I say, very passive. He was he was he was basically the um, Martin Luther King pre nineteen sixty five Martin Luther King. He was very I have a dream type. So men like Rockefeller, Carnegie, and even President Taft believed in his vision because it was very passive. You know, uh, Negroes can um, just you know do what they can and get whatever little freedom they can get. After a series of speaking engagements, as well as developing Tuskegee Institute, Washington says his mother Jane was the catalyst to show him 
that a person can be industrious and live within society. Washington, based on personal experience, caused him to make a decision to advocate for a vocational and industrial education in the Use of Land Grants Act. In his book, Up From Slavery, Washington made observations between Hampton Institute students and Washington, D.C. students. He noticed, Washington uh, noticed the D.C. students knew land in Greek, yet when they left school, they seemed to know less about life in this condition. C. Eric Lincoln noted that Washington's views was that of thrift, industry, and self-help, which is applicable to, uh, today. This enabled him to pose no threat to the status quo. Washington believed that this was the only way that African-Americans can properly be part, be part of society. That was his belief. He believed that blending in and going along to get along. In the Atlanta Compromise in 1895, he says, there's no defense or security for any of us except the highest intelligence and development of all. Anywhere there are efforts tending to curtail the fullest growth of the Negro, let these efforts be turned into stimulating, encouraging, and making him the most influential, most useful, and intelligent citizen. Effort or, or means is investing. We'll pay a thousand percent interest. These efforts will be twice blessed, blessing him that gives and him that takes. In the postbellum period, very few African Americans knew how to read. Washington stressed physical salvation through hard work. He was not the type of person that would encourage people to do something and somehow find immunity not to do it. Washington believed that a person can be educated through, uh, can be educated enough to benefit society by learning a trade or craft. This was Booker T. Washington's view. Now, we heard about Douglas, we heard about Washington, right? Now, during the 19th century, classical and vocational education uh, lied at the very heart of the education system. The question was how the student will be educated even further, how the land that was granted be utilized in order for the school to have a future. There was opposition to industrial and vocational education. It was met with historian and sociologist and Pan-Africanist, Dr. William Edward Burgard Du Bois. Even though their motives for uplifting the downtrodden African-Americans in the post-bellum era were the same, his views as far as uplift the society was the same as Washington. However, his views of attaining the goals varied. Although Du Bois in his book entitled Black Reconstruction of America asserted that black labor was the foundation stone of the South and the North, conversely, Du Bois, a Howard, a Harvard graduate, wanted African Americans to be able to academically compete with their white counterparts in the classics and liberal arts. Washington believed that African Americans must earn a skill or trade in order to show that they can assimilate into society. Du Bois did not agree with this view. He believed that if it happens, it would keep the people in a more submissive role instead of being equal to everyone else. Therefore, the concept of industrial education is criticized because of its lack of forward thinking and movement. 
Another point of their disagreement was their stance concerning African-Americans' involvement in politics. Washington believed that people should receive a sound education, acquire trade, and let the laws of the land prevail. The boys, the boys, on the other hand, believed that a person must get involved in politics to make sure everyone receives the benefits of being an American citizen and not a select few. We've observed the industrialists that used the gospel of wealth explain why they were prospering. As a result of this, the people were swayed by this view and leaned and ascribed towards social Darwinism and scientific thought. Boris amplified this point of view by asserting the ideas of the talented ten. That's the belief that one has to compete and rise to the occasion in order to get ahead and then reach the less fortunate lift as we climb. There are some ministers and churches that answer that call by challenging uh, the more fortunate to lift up the downtrodden. This thought is seen in, in the social gospel for some and, social, and socialism in others. Booker T, the face of section four of the More Land, um, More Land Grant Act found opposition in another area concerning his views. This opposition, he, ironically, is men in the church community. Bishop Henry Turner, a charismatic minister, Bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, wanted a quick and decisive resolution to the discrimination problem in the South. In the realm of Christianity, Washington, who was a Baptist, believed in gradual and deliberate accommodation was, uh, his thoughts was being challenged. Turner, like Du Bois, was born a freedman in South Carolina. Therefore, his ideology of quick and unwavering view of equality, by any means, were also similar to his northern contemporary. According to Starwell, Turner's Methodist contemporaries asserted that even though black people have been slaves for over 300 years, skilled artisans were few and not all of them learned to trade. Therefore, the need for vocational education is vital to the growth of future um, development of the black community. Now, as we roll into the 20th century, historians such as E. Franklin Frazier agreed that the need to educate African-Americans was still paramount. However, his concern was who was over the projects and what was their motives. In his book, The Black Bourgeois, Frazier observed that black colleges were established by the church, yes, they were merely, they were just merely imitations of the puritanical European schools attempting to assimilate into their culture. So we have the black church establishing the black schools using the, uh, the land grant acts, be it Washington's uh, point of view, making it an A&M school, or Du Bois' point of view, just making it, uh, letting, allowing them to learn liberal arts and sciences and to compete. But then we have Frazier here. He said, look, these people are trying to fit in with the European status quo. He says, therefore, the schools over time went from making good men to just men who make money. Nevertheless, in order for the black schools during the reconstruction period to become established, they had to uphold section four, the Moreland, uh, Moreland Act, as well as Freeman Bureau Act. Now, this 
lie squarely on the Black Baptists and Methodist churches because it, it was a spiritual force that uplifted the people during the Reconstruction era. Now, it's my belief that, um, that very little is discussed concerning the primacy of education during this period and how they paved the way to reconstruct the minds of African-Americans, be it uh, A&M or classical. The bottom line is the black church wanted their children and children's children to be educated, to be free, to be critical thinkers, to be agents of change. And it did happen. Although it's not discussed, the church already had their uh, denominations, theological views, uh, but they also had their buildings and large following. So they had the foundation. At the end of the Civil War, they did not have enough land to use uh, for the colleges, so they utilized it. They did. They utilized the more land uh, after 1862. They needed it. Think, think about what, what if we was in that position and we had this opportunity to make life better for our children and our children's children and so on. Would you take it? Hmm, think about it. And Black Baptists and Methodists would also have different approaches as to how they use it, but the desired result was the same. Some historians such as Du Bois and Fraser criticized their efforts and kept it uh, and believe that black people in the was being servants instead of masters. Nevertheless, that church use of the land grant act uh, prepared minds for the coming era. I believe in a time of constant education reform and standardized testing, the idea of classical and vocational education should be readdressed. We need both. Similar to the days of Du Bois and Booker T. There are many students who graduate high school or college. They're able to make high, uh, take a high stakes exam, yet they cannot change the tire. Students know trigonometry, but cannot understand why their light bill and mortgage rates going up. It's rare to find schools that focus on both. This can be attained if the curriculum can be revised to focus on both classics as well as trade. Students only uh, today need to have both classical as well as practical education. Practical education that allows them to be able to work in order to uplift their communities. Paint, know how to paint a house or put nails in a, in a fence, change a tire. That's basic stuff, but it, it, that's things that is necessary. This would enable them to benefit today's society. We need the degree and the deed, the, the paper and the property. In result, there will be a complete student learning the arts and sciences as well as learning the trade. See, these HBCUs that was founded so many years ago um, were the brainchild of our ancestors in the South as well as the North. They put together a vision Remember, there was once a time where Africans in America could not read a letter. Now they're free and they want to read all the letters. 
They want to be able to make sentences and paragraphs, read books. And they want to make sure that children know the laws of the land. So they will not be enslaved anymore. That's why the HBCUs use the More Land uh, Land Grant Act. That's why they used uh, the Freedmen's Bureau Act. I can remember reading about one of my ancestors being visited by one of the people of the Freedmen's Bureau and to talk about her experience as a former slave. So these things are real. And what happened is, <clears throat> as the 20th century unfolded, the individuals who met white racism, supremacy, or met injustices anywhere and everywhere, they were the products of, guess who? These HBCUs. When there was um, women's rights or or individual rights or human rights or um, whether it be um, self-defense, whether it be um, helping others or whether it be I have a dream or freedom now, these men and women came from our HBCUs. Throughout the century, you will see names and faces, and behind those names and faces were our schools. When there was an integration issue, it wasn't because their schools were better. It was simply because their schools were more funded. Think about it. They wanted to be integrated into schools because the materials and resources was terrible. It wasn't because the education they got was terrible. It was because the books were falling apart. It was hand-me-downs. But what if, what if, five, if, if the schools was getting equal funding and everything was on, on the equity level where everybody got a fair share. Would there be a lot of protesting? People going want to go to the white schools in Little Rock and, and little girls marching past uh, white people yelling at her? No, they would, they would go to their own schools and call it a day. The most productive people, most the people that were fighting for freedom in the 20th century. Most of the majority of them came from an HBCU. So these, be it a land grant, be it A&M or classical, the result was the same, was to uplift the black race. Even now, the majority of African-Americans teach at any school anywhere in America came from a historically black college or university because of what they did so many years ago and what they believed in. The idea of being productive as well as knowledgeable in today's, today's society is, is sought after. The 
very few attained because of the stigma being focused in one area. Let's do this together. Let's grow. Let's thrive. This is King Cam's on June Bay's podcast. And on June Bay means message. And the message is the black church and education. If you want to be a sponsor to this podcast, feel free. You can message me. And if you you like what you hear, you can subscribe and follow and share. And if you would like to contact me, you can email me at kingcams at nsfatherhood.org. And once again, my name is King Cam. This is Unjumbe's podcast. And I will talk to you later.